Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. We'll spend the next five Sundays looking at the Magi. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Ruthie will read. We're going to read different parts of the Christmas story this month. She'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, verse 26. So find Matthew 2, put your finger there or your bulletin there, and then go to Luke 1, 26, the Annunciation, the announcement, Gabriel to Mary. Matthew 2, 1 is where I will preach from. I will preach from Matthew 2 all month. But Ruthie will read this morning from Luke chapter 1, verse 26. I hear those pages rustling. There's nothing in the world that sounds better than Bible pages rustling. If I were a millionaire, I would create an app. What are you doing? Oh, thank you, darling. If I were a millionaire, I would create an app for your phones that when you're looking for a Bible verse, it makes the sound of flapping, flapping. That's what I would do. Sherry likes that idea. Thank you, Sherry. We're, we're resonating today. Okay, all right, that's great. I just think that'd be a good idea to hear those Bible pages rustling. Are you ready, babe? I am so ready. Okay. I'm ready, yes. I, I, I'm so glad I found my Bible. I thought I left it in the car. You, uh, you could have used mine. I, I know, but, you know, I wouldn't want to interrupt the flow of worship. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I know exactly <laughs> where that came from. Go right ahead. <laughs> Would you please stand for the reading of God's beautiful word? Don't you just love December? All the things to celebrate and Thanksgiving just gets us in the right frame of mind. The many things we have to be thankful for. And I've had an abundance of things to be thankful for this week. I hope you did too. Okay, I think you said you wanted Matthew 126. No, Luke 126. I knew that. <laughs> okay, you know, we also got lost on the way to church this morning. Yes, yeah, I yes, did. Yes, we did. <laughs> I'm meeting, I'm, I'm meeting the pastor search committee today at lunch, visiting with them, and I was thinking about the picture I want to take of them, because that's what I pray. For those of you that make prayer requests, as you know, I pray for you. And so I wanted to get a picture just right, and I was thinking how I wanted to make that picture. I missed the Campbell exit. I missed Kansas Expressway. <laughs> Suddenly I woke up and I thought, where am I? I looked down. <laughs> So yes, it did happen. I got it. But we got here on time and we're ready. We did. We did. You know, he he was interim pastor at Calvary Baptist in Republic. We would drive that way. And he preached some at Marionville and we would drive that way. So, you know, we might have walked in. Sometimes, you know, the lights are on and nobody's home. <laughs> but we found our way back. <clears throat> okay. The book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. Mary was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Well, <laughs> Mary was confused and disturbed, and she tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Amen. 
you pray with me, please? It's hard to imagine so many centuries later, Lord, what it was like mm, true. during those days, like for Mary to have an angel come to her and tell her such news, and for the understanding of what that would have meant to her as an unmarried woman. Thank you for Joseph, who loved her and cared for her, who was picked for this special job, the same as Mary. Thank you that all these years later, we stand here saying, we are the son of the Most High God. Amen. We are the daughters of the Most High God. Amen. We can never be thankful enough, and we can certainly never be worthy. But precious Lord, we can sure be thankful, and we are. Bless you, bless you, Lord. We give you thanks and honor and all glory. In your holy, precious name I pray. And we do not forget. Thank you for the cross. Amen. Amen. Wow, you may be seated. Thank you, baby. I love you, darling. I love you. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Now, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Let's stop right there. Bethlehem is five miles from Jerusalem. There's no distinction now between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. The city continues, but the wall that separates Palestine and the war that you're seeing now develop in that world the wall goes right through the middle of that where the town meets the suburb, Jerusalem and Bethlehem. You can see it. You can go anywhere in the city that you go of Jerusalem. If you're up high, you can look down and you can see that wall. Right on the other side of that wall is Bethlehem. And right there is where Jesus was born. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. Today we would call it Breadville, Breadton, maybe Breadburg. We put the name bread in. Evidently, the crops harvested there were very rich. The soil was very fertile. The town is internationally famous, of course, because it is the birthplace of Jesus, the most important human who has ever lived. I think any, any historian uh, in any analysis of the world history would have to say that the most influential person who has ever lived is Jesus of Nazareth. And he was born in the town of Bethlehem. In the Bible, we are told that he was born while Herod was king. Now people say that when Jesus was born, Herod was king. They put the emphasis on Jesus rather than Herod. When he was born, the emphasis was Herod, the great king. Now it's Jesus. The roles have reversed. And who is most important of the two? In the year 40 B.C., Jesus was born about 6, 7, or 8 B.C. When they tried to figure out the calendar in the Middle of Ages, there were, there were kings that overlapped each other, and they, they missed some uh, of the dates. And so they usually, you know, the, the zero date is wrong. We, we know he was born at least six or seven or eight years before zero. So about 40 years before zero, 40 B.C., the Roman Senate had given Herod the Great the title 
king of the Jews. That was his official title. As it began to dawn on the early Christians who Jesus was, as they went from understanding that he was not only just man, but he was God in human flesh, they started trying to find words to describe something that had never happened before. And to describe someone like whom there had never been anyone before. So they'd go out into the marketplace and they'd grab a word and say, we'd like to take that word redeemed and use it. They'd go over into the political realm and they'd say, oh, the word governance, we'd like to use that word over here. They'd go around the world and that's where guys like me make a living. Guys like me made a living through a lifetime digging out these words. Why did they pick that word from that particular part of life? Why was that word used? Why, what were they trying to say about Jesus? Well, one of the things that the early Christians loved to do was to take the titles that had been given to earthly kings and apply them to Jesus. Since the best things that you can say about anybody, you're going to say to a king, your monarch, you want to praise them, you want to brag on them, you, you want their approval. So, so you give these great, wonderful, flowing terms to people. And the early Christians would hear these terms and they'd say, well, well, that's really a good phrase, but it really doesn't apply to that person it applies to this person. And this is one of the most famous of those instances. Herod the Great's official title was King of the Jews. And the early Christians looked at that and said, man, that's a great title. But he doesn't get it. Jesus does. When Jesus was born, the man who was considered the greatest human who had ever lived, unanimously, was Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had gone a thousand miles farther than the Roman legions went, that the farthest the Romans ever went. There was no one ever like Alexander. He stood on the edge of the Indus River, conquered all the way to India. He stood on the Indus River. His soldiers had been away from home for years. Well, a thousand miles farther than the Romans would ever go 300 years later. He stood on the edge of the Indus River and he cried. He said, there are no more worlds to conquer. Came back, had changed the whole world. Everything was different, carried Greek culture. And to the Romans, Alexander the Great was the greatest who had ever lived. His title was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That was Alexander's title because as he would go across, he would let kings live. He let the lords live. He'd rule over them. So he was the king over kings and he was the Lord over lords. And the early Christians really liked that. They liked that title. That really sounds good. That's a good one, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But they said, but you know what? It doesn't really belong to him. It belongs to Jesus. Caesar Augustus, the big guy, the guy at the top of the heap. Caesar Augustus' title was, you ready? Savior and Lord. That was the title of Caesar Augustus. Savior and Lord. And the angels themselves are taking care of that. And they said, born unto you is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So Herod was the king of the Jews. And Jesus took that title from him. And that title is about the only thing that Herod and Jesus ever shared in common. Jesus was the prince of peace. Herod is one of the most brutal, most criminally insane Vile, evil, 
devil-drenched men who has ever lived. He had ten wives, one after the other. The only one he ever loved was a lady named Mary Omni. In a fit of jealousy and anger, he killed her one day. He immediately regretted what he had done. He grabbed her body, took it to his bedroom. He kept her in bed with him until her body began to rot. About five days before he died, he murdered his heir, her son. He killed the babies after Jesus got out of Bethlehem. He did so many terrible things that we can't even talk about. I can't even, I can't even talk to you and tell you the terrible things he did. And he ruled for over 30 years in Israel. And the Israelites knew that this man who was a vassal of Rome, he loved Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus one of his closest friends. Caesar Augusta, the main guy, says better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Since he was a Jew, he wouldn't need a pig. He let a pig live, but he would kill his own sons. That's what Caesar Augusta said about Herod. They were tightest thieves. And Herod was determined to make sure that Caesar Augustus and Rome ruled. And the Jews underneath Herod, they were about to lose it, folks. He was suffocating their culture. They, they couldn't breathe. They thought it was all hopeless. They were in despair. Israel was sick at heart. They had waited and yearned for this deliverance, for somebody to come. And in the worst days, the gloomiest hours, that's when Jesus came. And that's almost always when Jesus comes in a special way. It's when it's as dark as it can be. When you are your sickest, that's when he'll show up. When the bills are the highest, that's when he'll come. And he'll do one of two things. He'll either relieve the suffering and make it easier, or he will do a miracle in you and cause you to be able to endure with joy what's happening to you. Christianity is the only religion in the world that does not run from suffering. We're the only one. Every other religion in the world, the whole purpose of the religion, the whole purpose of their belief system is to run as hard and fast as they can from suffering. But in Christianity, in Christianity, when our God decided to do the greatest thing He would ever do for humans, when our God decided that He was going to do something far beyond anybody's expectation, something that Ruthie prays about every time she prays, God decided the best way to help humans was suffering. Our God, our God, our God honored suffering. He took it and said, this is the best way to help them. I will suffer. So we Christians, we don't run from suffering. But we also know that we're human and it hurts us. So we don't glory in it, so to speak. We're not celebrating that we're suffering. But we have learned that in the darkest, most difficult time, Jesus is coming in a special way. He's with us always, but he comes in special ways because suffering somehow is the way that God has chosen to bless us most. And so when things look their worst, he's either going to make it easier on us or he's going to make us stronger than we've ever been before. Back to the text. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Back to verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem. Tradition has wrongly portrayed these men as kings, 
One of the greatest songs Christmas songs ever written is a song titled We Three Kings. Unfortunately, that hurts the song, and yet it's a wonderful song. If you, if you sing the song and read it, the words is fantastic. It's just, it has brought into our tradition the thought they were kings. They were not. They were magi, which means they were priests. They were people who worked with the Persian royalty. Persian kings and the lords and the nobles of Persia had these priests that were kind of like their servants who, who were at their beck and call, and it would teach them how to live and how to do things and those kinds of things. These men were called magi. That was the name of their group. They were, first of all, considered holy, and their religion was astrology. These men spent their whole lives reading the stars. While everybody else was asleep, the magi would stay up at night Reading the stars. That moving star right there, they gave it a name, the Mercury. That one over there, that's always the brightest of them all, Venus, the one that moves. And they studied the stars because they believed that the stars foreordained everything in life. That whatever star you were born under, whatever star was at its zenith, the night of the day of your birth... That star determined whether you're going to have a good life or a bad life. They could predict the future. So that's what they did. These were very religious men. They tried to foretell the future based on the stars. Shakespeare played off of this when he said that Romeo and Juliet were what? Star-crossed lovers. That's what he's talking about. This old system of believing the stars cause things to happen in our lives. They were also considered wise men. They studied They worked hard. They read the scrolls. And 600 years before this event, when the Jews were scattered all over the world, they took their scrolls with them. They took their traditions with them. They took their teachings with them. And so for 500 years at least, the Persians had known that the Jews believed that someday God was going to raise up a special king. Did they know everything? No, but they knew enough to travel a thousand miles from the heart of Persia, which is now Iran, to Israel, to see if the prediction that the Jews had been talking about for 500 years to them had finally come true. They traveled for months. They journeyed a long way. They risked hostile enemies. They crossed the Tigris and Euphrates, two very dangerous rivers. They hazarded desert winds, desert sand. That's the way it's always been with Jesus. When Jesus comes, the whole world gets upset. He's always stirring the pot. Nothing is ever the same when Jesus comes into your life or when you get right with Jesus. Jesus just mixes up everything. He came into Rome. He took the Roman Empire and the Colosseum died. The gladiators quit. Those brutal games ended. He came into the Roman world. And for the first time in the history of the world, somebody cared about the sick. Changed everything. For the first time in the history of the world, somebody cared about the poor. For the first time ever, somebody cared about immigrants. The whole world was changed. The whole world traces every positive move it's made, every step of progress to the coming of Jesus. That's what he always does. When he comes, he just stirs the pot. All right, let's go back. That's a good place to say amen. Say amen.
Very good. Verse 2. Now verse 2. Boy, I hate it when I have to roll my own, but that's okay. Verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. How did they know it was his star? How do guys who all they do is step and out and read the stars and read the ancient scrolls, how do they know that <clears throat> that star, that's different? They had the old scrolls of Israel. And in the old scroll, Balaam, the prophet, had said, There shall come a star from Jacob, from the Jews, and a scepter will arise from Israel. They had read the book. They had read the sky. And they were waiting for a star in the western sky. Is, is that north right there? Somebody help me out. If you don't know, don't answer. Is that north? <laughs> north, south, east, west. They're Easterners, and they knew that someday there was going to rise a star that had something to do with the Jews, and that star, that Jewish person would have a scepter. And so, from their home in the east, they saw a stunning star in the west. And they knew that stars are major signals about a person's birth. They knew something extraordinary was going on. Since it was especially important at birth, they felt that somebody was being born that was really special. So they saw a star they had not seen before. They were students of the sky. They had the scroll. They knew a Jew was going to be born. And so they went in the direction of the star. They knew that the Jews for 500 years had been waiting for this person to come. And therefore, they came. And the reason they went to Israel was when you look due west from Persia, you're standing in Persia and the star is in the west. If you go right straight down, the last piece of land before you step into the Mediterranean Sea was Israel. So here they are. They're students of the old scrolls. They're students of the sky. And they see a star way off at yonder, and they're going to start following the star. And so they take off as far as they can go. When they get to the end, they're in Israel. And so they arrived in Jerusalem and met with Mr. Herod. Now, the question always is, what was this star? I've read, I've, I've been in the ministry over half a century. I've read and I've read and I've read. You have everything you can imagine. Super scientists have tried to explain it. Supernova, meteor, comet, just, you can just go on and on and on. Convergence of planets, that's, that's one of the main theories in, among scientists today, maybe a convergence of the planets somehow. And then where the, scientists, where the scientists finish, that's where the artists begin. When I grew up, 
Kids, you'll love this. Young people, you'll love this. When I grew up, every tree in America, that's an, that's an exaggeration, but not by much. Every Christmas tree in America had a star on top of it. They don't do that much anymore. But see, the, see, where the scientists are trying to get technical, the artists come in and they try to interpret and they try to do beautiful things. It's one of the great things about it. If you are an artist, I would beg you, I would implore you to every once in a while in your drawing and your writing and your pictures, do something for Jesus. Something. For where the scientists end, and we preachers can only go so far, artists have license to, to push it a little bit farther. I'm a student of Rembrandt. And Rembrandt's crucifixions are some of the most beautiful paintings in the history of the world. And Rembrandt, after studying the crucifixion for much of his adult life, finally did the raising of the cross. And it's the one in which he painted himself. Was he there when they crucified Jesus? No, but he's an artist, so he can get away with that. If you're an artist, you use your gift for the Lord. Da Vinci? Da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper is all wrong. There wasn't a table or a building or a house in Israel that ever looked like that. They never sat like that at a table. But it didn't matter why, because he's an artist. And he wanted to catch the moment when Jesus said, One of you shall betray me. And he did it. He caught it. The artist captures our fascination. Use your art ability for the Lord. And then one of my favorite stories, Charles Stanley, the great pastor of First Baptist Atlanta. When Charles Stanley became the lead pastor at First Atlanta, he was on staff, became lead pastor. 300 people voted against him and left. It was 350, 375, some big number like that. And they all left. And Stanley thought he was going to lose his mind. I've lost 300 people in one Sunday. When Second Baptist started at Hill City, we lost 300 people one day. I was pastor at Second. That was beautiful. And that was wonderful. It was precious. Everybody was crying all over the building, but it was a beautiful and precious day. So I know how it feels to lose 300. But I don't know how it feels to lose 300 mad, angry, upset people. And there was a little old lady in Charles Stanley's church and said, Pastor, I need you to come to my house. So he went to her house. He loved to tell this story. So Stanley knocked on the door, went into her house, and she said, Pastor, I want you to look at this picture. And it was that famous picture of Daniel in the lion's den where Daniel is surrounded by the lions and Daniel is looking up at light coming in to this den of lions. And she said to Charles Stanley, she said, she said, Pastor, learn one thing. Daniel is not looking at the lions. And the artist did for Charles Stanley, what all the teachings and all the preachers and everything else could not do. And he said, I walked out of that house saying I would never look back at those 300 again. He spent the rest of his life looking up to the Lord. That's what the artist can do. I'm not a scientist and I'm not an artist. I'm just me. I'm just a preacher of the gospel. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an artist. I just believe that whatever this, this star was, that it was a miracle. Unexplainable by science, even unexplainable by art. It, just, it was a phenomenon that these men had spent their whole life studying and they could not explain. I feel that God, who is light, the Bible says God is four things. 
you don't know these, you need to write them down. God is spirit. God is love. God is consuming fire. God is light. That's it. That's the four things. And I feel that God, in the darkest time the world had ever seen, in the awful darkness, God decided to turn on a light. And that light would signal to these men a thousand miles away that something different was happening. And the light has to have been God. God, God has often used light as his way of saying, I'm here, it's me, pay attention. What's the first thing God said in the creation? Let there be light. The sun was not created till day four. There was light. Life came. Where was the light? It was God. Where did the sun get its light? Borrowed it from God. God wanted the world to know God is light in the darkness. The burning bush. Everybody talks about the bush that did not burn. Time out, folks. Time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. What about the fire that didn't need a bush? There's the real point. It's not a bush that wouldn't burn. It's a light that didn't need any fuel. In the wilderness, God led the people by night by a miraculous pillar of light. It was fire. And they would follow the light. In the temple, the Holy of Holies, the room where God was pictured as being, never went dark. A supernatural light always shining in there. When Jesus wanted shepherds to know that he was coming in a very special way, that he who is spirit was becoming flesh, he shined his light round about them. When Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, light transfigured him. On the day of Pentecost, when God was coming in power, light, like flames of fire, came on the head of the apostles. And when God wanted Saul of Tarsus' attention, he blinded him with a bright light. And to me, to me, just a simple preacher, that what happened was, in the dark night of this world's existence, when it was as bad as it could be, shepherds over here, God just reached over here, and he flipped the switch. And it was his way of saying to a whole world, you are dark, you are lost, you are undone. But you are not forgotten, and you are not forsaken. And to every believer ever since that day, when things are their darkest, things are their hardest, things are the most difficult, somehow in our innermost essence we know that God somehow will turn on a light for us. More next Sunday. You can put your notes away now and put your Bibles away and I want you to close your eyes and pray. I want you to close your eyes and pray. I want you to draw near to him. Some of you have come with burdens so great. I pray for some of you. I do not know how you even 
stand and walk into the building. I don't even know how you function. Some of you need to pray. You need a light turned on. You either God's either got to make your burden less or God's got to do a miracle in you and make you stronger. Why don't you in this Christmas season beg God to turn the light on? Let God decide what he'll do. Make it better or, or make you stronger. Let him decide, but why don't you ask him to turn the light on? And then in a crowd decides, there's always somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Listen to me. Listen to me. Your life has no purpose. You know that you sin. You know that you displease God. But in your darkness, there is one who wants to turn on light for you. And maybe somebody said something this week. Maybe somebody convinced you it's time to become a Christ follower. Maybe that's why you're here today. Maybe something in the music brought you to the precipice or maybe something in the message. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Maybe now you're ready to receive Jesus. And if so, could I, could I be the one that would flip the switch with you? Would you give me that honor to do that? To be the one that turns the light that shines directly into your heart? This is the prayer that I prayed when I became a Christ follower. This is my prayer. I, my daddy led me in it, led my son in it. The words don't save you. We don't believe in magic. But the words help me to say what I wanted to say, and if that's the case, if it's coming from your heart, then this prayer helps. And so if you'd like to do this, let me lead you in a prayer, and you repeat it silently as I pray it out loud, phrase by phrase. Dear Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen.